Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health, especially in these challenging times. And today we are joined by Dr. Thomas Levy, who has written a number of books. He's most widely known for his work with vitamin C, which, of course, has come into special prominence now in this uh, uh, COVID-19 epidemic or pandemic that we're having. So, uh, But he's written another book, a most recent one, Mag Magnesium Reversing Disease. And when we initially scheduled this interview, which was last year, I believe, um, <laughs> This was not an issue. In fact, it wasn't, it wasn't even known in China that this was an issue. So obviously things have changed. So we're going to morph the uh, interview and the dialogue that, to integrate some of this information here because I think that would be really useful. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank, me. thank you for having me, Joe. So uh, I guess uh, rather than me provide your extensive background, you're a physician, an MD, cardiologist by specialty, and have a special passion in intravenous vitamin C, or not intravenous, but vitamin C generally, and that's what you're, I believe, most widely known for. So why don't you expand on your background uh, to give us a perspective and framework from your position, and then we can dialogue okay. about some of those things. Sure. Uh, I was just a regular old mainstream cardiologist some 25 years ago in Colorado Springs, Colorado, when I met Dr. Hal Huggins, who many know, not everybody, was a, a maverick dentist and probably led the world in the anti-mercury amalgam movement. He also did a lot of other things and he invited me to come to his clinic uh, in Colorado Springs one day and I saw so many sick people with so many different diseases over several days and weeks getting so much better. It kind of threw me for a loop. And one patient in particular uh, looked very bad while, they, while she started her dental work. And two hours later, she was feeling fantastic. And it made no sense to undergo that much serious dental work and feel better at the end of it. And Dr. Huggins pointed at the IV. And I said, well, thanks a lot, Hal. I know all about IVs. What are you trying to tell me? He said, well, it's what in it. What's in it? I said, what's in it? He said, 50 grams of vitamin C. And that was absolutely brand new, out of the blue information to me. But quite honestly, I'm just not in the habit of denying something that my eyes have witnessed. So that really, that moment on triggered my uh, research into vitamin C and ultimately where I am today, I suppose. Yeah. And just as a side note to that, uh, Dr. Huggins is no longer with us. He was a pioneering biological dentist and uh, early on through his crusading efforts acquired quite a bit of significant damage from his mercury extractions. And I believe succumbed to some that was contributing to his premature death. So yes, I do, I do consider him the world's leading and first significant biological dentist. I would agree with you on that, sir. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was definitely a loss, and he was a, a great pioneer. 
So um, I guess rather than jump into the book now, uh, in, in light of the current pandemic, we are um, recording this on March 24th, just to give you a timestamp. Uh, I'm not sure when this will air, uh, because obviously uh, this pandemic scenario is changing day by day. Uh, my frame on it is that I believe uh, it, it's, a, it's a sad scenario that we're in from the, that fact that a number of people are, are going to be impacted and die prem, prematurely. Maybe some not so prematurely because it just seems to be affecting the elderly and the frail for the most part, certainly not 100%. But the relative number of deaths are, are it does, deaths are relatively small, not significantly different from the, at least at this point in time than flu. So I, I think rather than the concern from the epidemic that we have to fear is, is really the reaction to the epidemic and especially the government uh, reactions, which is shutting down the economy and literally driving us into a, a massive depression where a minimum of one fourth to one third of the country will be unemployed, which is going to create massive complications. So I think that's the bigger concern and how to address that is, is another topic. But for those who do have concerns with respect to some of the actions that they can take to shore up their own immune system, or if for some reason they come down with this infection or another similar infection, which would be the flu or a cold, which can have similar complications, uh, then some of the strategies that uh, you've acquired over the years, I think, can be very helpful. So why don't you share share your perspective and tell us what how you would approach this? Well, uh, obviously, I don't want to minimize what the government doctors have been saying about hygiene, washing, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. That's obviously extremely important, and I don't want to say that it's not. It is. Uh, however, we want to talk about what to do to best prevent getting the virus, and if you do eventually get the virus, how then best to approach treating it. Preventing it is just to stimulate your immune system as best as possible. Uh, as I'm sure you know, vitamin C is one of the primary, I personally believe from the research and the literature, the primary agent that stimulates and arms and maximizes the potency of the immune system. So. I don't think it can be undersold as to how important a regular dose of C, how much? Well, as a general recommendation, two to three grams, three or four times a day, somewhere in that range for most people. Some people would be sensitive, take less, some people could take more, but ballpark, that would be the ballpark. It's very important to take vitamin D as well, probably somewhere along the lines of 10 to 15,000 units a day, at least during the time of the epidemic, later on perhaps less. Uh, a good preparation of zinc also helps arm the immune system. Uh, and uh, any of the basic good vitamin and nutrient supplements are fine, but, but those are the premier ones, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, general supplementation should also always include uh, vitamin K as well. Uh, because, and magnesium, which I guess we'll talk about a little bit later, but I consider vitamin C, magnesium, vitamin D, and vitamin K2 to be the premier top four supplements for promoting and maintaining good health, mainly because they're the primary antagonists to calcium accumulation and excess calcium inside the cell, 
which I might later be able to show you, I consider to be the primary physiology, pathophysiology uh, in all disease. Now, one other thing, uh, bring in something out from left field, but I tell you, I could not believe that it's more important, Joe, and that is, and I've done it myself, a lot of family and friends already, for both prevention and treatment, nebulization with hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen mm -hmm. peroxide absolutely destroys everything on an open wound. Well, guess what? When you put a fine mist of it inside your sinuses, nose, and throat, it nukes the virus there too. And one thing I don't think it's emphasized enough is that even when you're systemically ill, influenza or coronavirus, and you have virus in your body, the thing that's fueling it is still an ongoing massive replication of the virus in the sinuses, nose, and throat. And when you can effectively knock that down 99% plus, as I like to say, you lop the head off the snake. And then the body is in great shape, especially with the support of things like vitamin C to mop everything up. Also, you mentioned Dr. Rowan uh, that you talked to recently. And ozone is fantastic. It's just that ozone is not readily available for most people. But gosh, if you have an ozone using physician that can give you ozone treatments of the blood when you have this or any other virus, that would be a phenomenal intervention as well. Uh, and the nebulization I'm talking about is the regular, over-the-counter, 80 cents a bottle at Walmart, 3% hydrogen peroxide. If you don't mind a little discomfort, you can do the full strength, but you can no, get, no, no, no. But you can get a great effect with 50%, 25% uh, of, that, of that concentration or less. So bottom line is uh, whatever aggravation it causes the nose and sinuses, those rapidly resolve uh, once you stop the nebulization. Oh, so you're talking about diluting the regular 3% by 50%. Yes, dilute, diluting at 50-50 okay. or diluting at 25-75. Yes, sir. Okay, that's good. So, yeah, it's actually uh, my interview with Dr. Rowan, which I did just yesterday, actually. Uh, we discussed that, and um, he, and a interestingly, hydrogen peroxide is a form of oxidative therapy, Absolutely. which which is certainly what ozone is, and also what vitamin C is when it's used in high therapeutic doses. I believe uh, the doses, especially the ones that you recommend, are recommending, which are, I view as a mega dose or, or a orthomolecular dose, uh, is more of a drug than a than a nutrient. And it has very powerful uh, antiviral activity, antipathogenic anti activity because sure. of its oxidative action. So, but, but I want to finish up on this and then we can go back to the, the, to discuss the dialogue and those, I have a few disagreements there uh, or points for discussion. So Rowan had suggested that <clears throat> one well, first of all, the nebulizers, where do you get them? You can get inexpensive ones on Amazon for $30. Those will probably break in a week or two. Uh, the better ones are the ones they use to inhale agents that are, can be used for asthma, typically. And those are closer to $75, 80 $100. I found this little, eight, this little one to work very well. Which it's, one is going to see? It's portable. Yeah, that's the one. Those are about $30. I bought one of those two in a, in a broke in two weeks. Now, look, look, show that. No, show it up there. Show it up there. So that mask is really, really good because the nebulizers come with a mouthpiece, which is not as good as that mask because the mask allows you to inhale it through your nose and your mouth. 
Well, actually, through your nose. But the, with the mouthpiece, you can only inhale through your mouth, which is not that good. So I like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. You want to reach both the nose and the sinuses if yeah, all yeah. possible. And you won't do that with just the mouthpiece. Yeah, well, so if you get a nebulizer, make sure you can use that mask because that, so I, so I use that mask from that device, which broke from me in two weeks. And I said, because, you know, it was a cheap unit made in China. You can get another one, but they're probably sold out now on Amazon anyway. But anyway, I couldn't agree more. The hydrogen peroxide is a great strategy and Rowan likes to integrate it with ionic colloidal silver, which you can actually combine with the peroxide. They, they mix quite well. Uh, there are certain types of silver that are more metallic that it will oxidize, so those you can't, but it's a good strategy. So let's get back to the vitamin C, excuse me, the dosage, uh, which you're recommending anywhere from six to nine grams a day. The RDA is, is you know, certainly significantly below that, somewhere about 100 milligrams or so would be generous. But I'm not convinced from the literature that it's necessary to take that on a regular basis. I have no problems using that dose and doses 10 times higher than that as an effective therapeutic intervention for treating an acute illness. Although after the discussion with Rowan yesterday, if I had access to ozone or vitamin C, I would go with the ozone. I think it's a more effective strategy. And Well, you know, ep epidemiologically, there's no question if the whole population just took one gram or two grams a day, I believe it would have enormous impact on the general public health and the incidence of infectious disease. This dosage was born. So let, let, me, let, me, let me stop okay, you there. So sure. it's the, the benefit that you're suggesting is because it's acting as a therapeutic anti-pathogenic agent, or is it, it is because it's optimizing uh, their level, nutritional levels systemically in, in, in biological reactions where it's necessary for, such as collagen production? Well, primarily because it's arming the immune system. And I might add, one of the reasons why we go with doses like that is because we try to follow the example of the animals that make their own vitamin C and animals that are roughly the size of a human being will make roughly six, eight, 10 grams a day and a whole lot more when under stress. So when you think in terms of the fact that our livers should be producing vitamin C, but we lost the fourth enzyme, uh, it's not such an astronomical dose, and that dose is actually being delivered, you know, directly into the bloodstream and not being poorly absorbed orally. So I, I would submit it's not that outlandish a dose, but yes, it takes a little attention to detail. If you don't have a liposome form or you're not taking intravenous, it requires taking it multiple times during the day for optimal effect, all of which, of course, impedes compliance. But in terms of what is best physiologically for the immune system, uh, that my, my conviction is that type of dose is warranted. Yeah, I have a different belief system because yours suggests that somehow uh, the way we developed uh, implies that the, the, the humans were some, that our biology was somehow foolish and just forgot to make vitamin C. But I believe that there's a lot more intuitive wisdom in nature and there is a good reason why we don't make it. I don't know what that reason is and I can't offer a counter hypothesis, but I see, I, I'm pretty confident that if that's what happened, that there's a reason for it. There is one uh, genetic disease, which you discuss in the book too, and it's widely, well, not maybe widely known, but if anyone is doing intravenous vitamin C, they certainly should know and test for this. And that's a, a genetic disease called G6PD deficiency, glucose 6-phosphate which is the pathway 
that's primarily resp- responsible for creating NADPH, and uh, which I believe is the most important electron donor in the body. You have a different belief, and you believe it's vitamin C, but I would <laughs> for some pretty strong. Well- I believe vitamin C is the pilot. It will supply electrons that end up eventually getting relayed where they need to go via mm-hmm. other electron acceptors and donors. So, so no, it's just sort of the, I mean, like glutathione, for example, is the most, yeah. most important and most concentrated inside your cell. But without the vitamin C coming in on regular doses, that works to keep the glutathione in as reduced a state as possible so it can have the maximal effect inside the cell. So, so no, it's not a superiority type thing. It's just where it fits yeah. in keeping the electron flow going everywhere it needs to go. Yeah, yeah. I know your book is written for a lay person, but it just it seems like it ignored the value of NADPH in a, in a molecular biological level because it's it's the ultimate electron donor. It's the battery of your cells, and if your NADPH isn't going, you're 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 a, a, a uh, going you're in bad shape the uh interestingly its cousin nad plus is what many would advocate for alcohol toxicity uh and in fact um bill uh, bill from the Al- alcoholics anonymous the guy who founded it i forget his last name or maybe he's just called bill um is uh had initially recommended niacin as part of the therapy of alcoholics anonymous but then it somehow was not able to integrate them into the program. And niacin import is, of course, is a precursor, metabolic precursor for sure. NAD. So that's really useful for alcohol detox. So anyway. Uh, Let's say I've always maintained that you should have as rich a matrix of antioxidants in your body as possible. They, yeah. they, they interact, they regenerate each other, and the different... Uh, characteristics chemically of one versus the other determines where it can get and what pathways it can intervene in. So I think we're in a basic agreement, although I'm not an expert on NAD and NADH and it no, NADPH. It, NADPH, excuse me, and it wasn't an intentional an yeah, intentional neglect. Yeah, I NAD. didn't think so, but it's just to be comprehensive because it's, you know, is it, it, NAD plus has gotten a lot of attention recently because of Sinclair's work at MIT and then Harvard. Uh, as its fuel for the longevity proteins, which are sirtuins. And uh, it, it really is an essential molecule. And the, the deep appreciation of that is just now beginning to become understood. So, but anyway, it's, it, it, they do all work in concert. So it's, it's an interesting symphony that the body puts together to make us healthy. And if we can optimize things, it's even better. But uh, anyway, so we can go on to administration, cleaning things up with the vitamin C, because interestingly, uh, the talk, there is some toxicity to vitamin C and to ozone, uh, ozone in, in, into the specific endothelial cells in your, in your lungs, but also in the lining of your veins. Uh, they don't have enough of, a, of a, an antioxidant called catalase. And catalase allows the conversion of the peroxide that's generated to convert to water. And because it's not there, it can be very irritating to the veins. Um, so, and in your lungs, the lungs, but you're not going to be breathing in uh, peroxide. Actually, not breathing in peroxide. You are be breathing peroxide. Actually, I wonder how that would work now that I think about it, because 
you and Rome both recommending the peroxide, but there's no catalase in there. So ozone is toxic. You cannot breathe in ozone. I mean, you could, but you'd be- Oh, you'd, not, not it's, for it's long. Toxic. About, about one or two breaths. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you'd be coughing like crazy because exactly. it's- Yeah, but you can, but it's interesting that the peroxide doesn't cause it, you know, that doesn't cause a reaction. I, I should have asked him that yesterday. I can't say this authoritatively, but my impression is number one, the peroxide is a very, is a molecule capable of quick and easy diffusion mm -hmm. across a lot of membranes. I think what happens is it rapidly gets inside the cell mm -hmm. and then uh, the breakdown of the hydrogen peroxide, just like the Fenton reaction, then proceeds to hydroxyl radical. No, it's, it's uh, once it bypasses the endothelium, it gets in there, the catalase is there and takes care of it. You're, no problem. That's a that's a, that would be a good answer. That would make sense. So anyway, it doesn't do that in the in the in the veins. So maybe you can discuss your protocol because you have a lot of experience with intravenous vitamin C, uh, and there's a lot of interest in it now, especially in Wuhan, China. They're doing studies with all these people who are infected with intravenous C. Uh, I, I I'm saddened to to, to uh, that they're not integrating these with ozone therapies because that would be interesting to see. But anyway, so what are your observations on the rate at which you can administer intravenous vitamin C and not cause vein irritation? Oh, when you have a pH balance solution, uh, which is usually just sodium ascorbate dissolved in water, you can have ascorbic acid dissolved in water, but buffered up with sodium bicarbonate for the same thing. When it's pH 7273.74 and you're doing it into a good sized vein, and we've done this many, many, many times, you can give uh, 12 grams IV push over five minutes. Uh, so Really? So you, it, it, it's just the pH. It, it's not the toxicity. No, 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 no. From the, no, just the pH. lack of catalase. No, no, no. Just pH. Yes, sir. We've done this wow. many, many, many times. And, and they're doing them as a routine now, Dr. Honey Hackey, at the Reardon Clinic, especially in light of the pandemic. This allows patients to come in just spend 10 minutes or so at the clinic, uh, get a quick IV push in between uh, 7.5 and, and 10 grams of C, along with magnesium and a few other things, and, and then they're out the door. And you have and a much, really good, quick... What's go the dosage? What's the dosage on that uh, uh, with respect to the amount of bicarb you have to, to optimize the pH? Well, you know, I'll say this too. I've used the McGuff preparation, mm -hmm. which is, they say buffered 5.5 or above so they're never really clear so i guess you have some preparations that are six some are six five some are seven uh we've used that without further buffering without any problem as well uh it's usually there's usually a small number of people usually the ladies with tinier veins uh that, that could have the problems but most of the time there's no problem at all and Matter of fact, many years ago, after reading Dr. Klenner's work, he reported that in a patient that was, he said, was dying of a toxic, uh, I believe it was snake or insect bite, who said, Doc, I, I think I'm going out. His blood pressure was down. Well, Klenner took out, I think it was 15 grams, full concentration, 500 milligram per cc of vitamin C, started the butterfly, a 20 gauge. And in, and in Klenner's words, I gave it as fast as the 20-gauge needle would allow. Wow. And the patient came around very quickly, even before the plunger was all the way down, 
So some 15 years ago, perhaps foolishly, I decided to reproduce that same, <laughs> <laughs> the same, same thing on myself. I was in my office. I started the but butterfly, being a Catholic. I made the sign of the cross. And then I went ahead and whammed it down, and I felt fine. I felt great. Uh, I have pretty big veins, so there wasn't any real problem with any vein irritation, but I quickly proved to myself that uh, clutter was shooting straight. Wow. That's interesting. Very interesting. So um, do, do you, I guess, got, gauge your therapy based on blood levels at all? And It is possible to do serum levels of vitamin C, isn't it? Yes. Uh, I mean, Dr. Honeyhacky at the clinic, uh, they'll, they'll do the blood levels for investigational purposes, but uh, especially when you're dealing with infections, everything is clinical. I mean, you basically mm -hmm. use enough vitamin C to get a positive clinical response, uh, less fever, less sweating, uh, improved blood work, etc. And it's, it's strictly, strictly clinical empirical. So, so no, that, I've never gauged a treatment on reaching a certain blood level. Yeah, but that, that's good to know for research purposes, I agree, yeah, but not necessary clinically. And the reason I ask is for those of comparison, because you, you alluded to another form of, IV, of vitamin C administration, which is liposomal as opposed to oral, which actually liposomal is oral, but it's a more effective and clo closer, more closely related to parenteral. And I'm wondering if anyone in you, if you or anyone in your clinic or researchers you're aware of that has compared liposomal vitamin C versus intravenous and what those that comparison would, might look like. Uh, yeah, we just recently did that at the Reardon Clinic. It was a small study, and we were just looking at vitamin C levels inside cells. Uh, and in particular, uh, it was less of a comparison. The, the IV and the liposomes were comparable, uh, although the liposomes were better, as we would expect, with uh, intracellular concentrations. And in particular, in this one particular study, we also looked at the effects of hydrocortisone, and particularly with the, uh, with the, um, with the liposome C, and we were looking at vitamin C concentration inside lymphocytes, the intracellular levels. And we found that the presence of the hydrocortisone massively increased the amount of vitamin C that goes inside the cell. Uh, and this is very interesting because when you think about the fact that probably, I would think, among all prescription medicines, although it's a natural agent as well, hydrocortisone is considered your number one anti-inflammatory agent. And it's my opinion, not fact, but opinion, that the primary reason hydrocortisone is your primary anti-inflammatory agent is because it exerts such a profound effect on putting vitamin C inside the cells. Interesting. So you looked at intracellular C levels and they were higher with liposomal uh, C administration as a composed to IV? Yes, as I recall. And that, makes, that makes a lot of sense too because it should penetrate the, the cellular membrane more easily and it's actually that's where you need it, you need yes, it inside the cell. You don't need it in, 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 the, um, in the plasma or in the interstitial area as much. So that is a good point. Uh, I have a, if, so, so, but the tests that are available clinically are serum tests, aren't they? Um, like a, from I think plasma, plasma. yeah, plasma. So has uh, your clinic looked at the plasma levels between liposomal C versus uh, intravenous? 
I believe that, I, I hate to sound uncertain on this, but I believe that was examined in this study, but I, I don't want okay. to misrepresent the uh, results. Okay. Maybe you, if you can forward me the study and we can include that in the, uh, the show notes here. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, I think that's the, most of the information. Sandler, is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Oh, I, what we didn't finish up on with the G6PD. Uh, now, it, it, the reason that's important, because if you have this enzyme defect, which is actually pretty common, especially in African-Americans, I think it's about one in 100 in the population, not African-Americans, but that's this genetic SNP. And if you have it and you take high doses, not a normal dose of vitamin C, even the dose you're recommending, but certainly under a gram, this is not going to be an issue, you can get hemolysis of the red blood cells. And that could be a, a pretty significant crisis. So I'm wondering at what, what is your protocol for doing this test before you administer uh, intravenous C? Well, medical legally, yes, it's fine to do the test on everybody. Uh, if you do have someone that's positive, you need to remember that the reason the red blood cells are hemolyzing is because they have increased intracellular or inter-red blood cell oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. And this is due to decreased glutathione levels inside the cell, decreased vitamin C levels inside the cell, increased calcium levels inside the cell. And so you can bolster these people up by uh, giving... Uh, usually liposomal or intravenous forms of glutathione uh, a day or two before, uh, as well as uh, intravenous magnesium. This builds up the resistance of the cell, and then you start out and build up slow. But let me also say that you counsel the patient that, you know, we want you to drink a lot of water, stay well hydrated, and, if, and you tell us if you notice any change at all in the color of your urine. Uh, and you'll find out early on, long before there's a, a massive hemolysis that's life-threatening, whether something untoward is action. Now, that is the overall approach, but I also have to follow up and say, uh, especially at the Reardon Clinic where I'm a consultant, I don't think we've ever seen that, not even once. Now, obviously, in a certain population, so let's say if the Reardon Clinic was in Africa, well, then mm -hmm. it might be a whole lot more concerned. But... Uh, there's a lot of people of color that come to the, the uh, Reardon Clinic as well, and it's just not turned out to be a problem. Although, with the reports in the literature as they are, you're probably not doing yourself any favors medical legally if you don't check the test. Yeah, and I, we, I failed to mention that in, in addition to being an MD, you're also a JD. So I, I believe that, that yeah, that's correct. Yes, sir. Yeah, so Juvenile delinquent, it stands for. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, um, well, and I guess the Reardon Clinic does use pretty high doses. They typically, well, what is the high dose they typically go to, 100, 100 grams or so? Yeah, they'll, uh, there are some patients, not frequently, but some patients will get 125, but most of the time it's 50 to 75, and most people, smaller women, might be 25. Okay. All right. That's good to know. I would also think that molecular hydrogen might be very useful in that scenario also because it could uh, sti stimulate the production of endogenous antioxidants like glutathione, catalase, superoxide dismutase, and hundreds of other endogenous antioxidants. So that would be my choice if, if somebody had G6PD. But that's good to know that even in a clinic like Reardon's, this is all, pretty much all they do full time. They haven't seen any consequences with that. No, no, not at all. Clearly a concern. Okay, so we can progress now to magnesium. Magnesium is the topic of your new book, Reversing Disease. 
magnesium reversing disease and uh, is interestingly uh, a, a calcium channel blocker, which becomes particularly useful for a wide variety of scenarios of oxidative stress. And because you mentioned earlier, one of the complications of the hemolysis is that high intracellular levels of calcium magnesium is a calcium channel blocker, which is one of the reasons I like it for mitigating the stress, oxidative stress from EMF exposure. And uh, one of my my favorite applications of magnesium extra, which I don't think you discussed in the book, but um, you know, it's not definitively proved, but there's quite a lot of uh, impressive data that strongly suggests it might be beneficial. So why don't you summarize the, the need for magnesium and help put us in perspective for us? Sure. Uh, A lot of this, the magnesium book almost came as a natural sequel to my earlier book in 2013, Death by Calcium. And when I did the research for that book, I I had no idea beforehand. I knew too much calcium wasn't good for you, but I had no idea how clear cut the data was. But bottom line was, and this is why magnesium, vitamin C, vitamin D, and vitamin K are so good, is they all are natural calcium antagonists. They all help dissolve pre-existing calcifications, and they all help to normalize the calcium in the body. And each one individually decreases all-cause mortality, decreases your chance of death from anything, which means they favorably impact every cell in the body. Well, as I reviewed more and more studies, it became apparent to me, and I've not found an exception to this yet, which is... Every cell that is quote unquote diseased has increased calcium levels inside the cell. And the higher they get, if you go without killing the cell, that's when you undergo malignant transformation. It's the highest levels of calcium that also result in cancer. It was also very apparent, even before I began the magnesium book, that magnesium was the number one calcium antagonist and general metabolic calcium function inhibitor. Uh, So, and then it mirrored everything. Uh, More calcium increased your chance of death by all causes, less decreased, more magnesium decreased it, less magnesium increased it. And so as I went into the studies on the uh, magnesium book, wow, I think the number is magnesium is directly involved one way or another with 80% of all the chemical reactions in the body. So that's not, that's a significant player everywhere. And as it turns out, as you go down disease by disease by disease, number one, it becomes apparent that magnesium deficiency by itself causes many diseases, but perhaps even more importantly is magnesium deficiency If it doesn't cause a disease, it makes all the rest of the diseases worse. Because once again, the more calcium you get inside the cell, the more oxidative stress, the less enzymes and other biomolecules function normally, and the more you bring that microenvironment inside the cell to a reduced level, reduction, then things start functioning normally. And wow, that's just what unfolded uh, as each disease went by. Uh, I was also very impressed with the anti-infectious nature of magnesium as well, something I completely caught me off guard. I think you're probably aware that Dr. Klenner cured 60 out of 60 cases of polio back in 1939 with uh, oral and injectable vitamin C in, in children and infants. 
And as it turns out, there was a French investigator in the 1800s that did much the same thing with magnesium chloride solution taken orally. Very, very profound positive results. And that's outlined in the book as well. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that even though magnesium is not an antioxidant per se, it exerts through other mechanisms a profound antioxidant effect uh, inside the cell, largely by displacing calcium and allowing uh, vitamin C to accumulate and for a glutathione synthesis to become optimized. Yeah, I couldn't agree more because I, in my book on EMF that was published earlier this year, I go over the mechanism uh, that you just discussed because the intracellular concentration of vitamin C is about 50,000 times lower than the extracellular. But when you get an excess amount of calcium inside the cell, it causes nitric oxide and superoxide levels to increase. And those two molecules, once they're formed, it's like instantaneously they, they form this really pernicious molecule called peroxynitrite, which is a reactive nitrogen species, an RNS, not an ROS. And it lives about 9 million times longer than hydroxyl free radicals. So because it lives so much longer, it can travel throughout the cell, outside that is formed and into the nucleus and really cause a lot of damage like stem cells, cell membranes, proteins, uh, mitochondria. So it, 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 I think that's the primary issue is this peroxynitrate. And it spins off carbonate-free radicals, which can cause significant damage in the DNA. So I couldn't agree more. It's, essentially, it's oxidative stress with the increase, increase in the calcium levels. And magnesium is such an elegant solution because almost every one of us are deficient. That's correct. Uh, it's interesting thing is uh, people talk about blood levels of magnesium. Well, let me say this. If your blood level of magnesium is low, you're very, very, very low in magnesium throughout your body. However, uh, if you're more fortunate to have a blood level of magnesium that falls in the quote unquote normal range, you're certainly much better off than the low blood level person. But 99% of magnesium is inside the cells, and of that, 95% is inside the mitochondria. So even though it's a water-soluble molecule, it is in fact stored to a great degree inside the cell, uh, and until, uh, in, in most of the time, the blood is just reflecting your daily intake and uh, excretion, intake and excretion, and if you keep a good level, you maintain this quote unquote normal level, but if you haven't addressed a lot of other magnesium wasting factors, you're still in fact quite low in your cells and can still have profoundly negative uh, impacts on uh, different diseases that you might have or might be susceptible to. Do you uh, regularly monitor RBC magnesium levels as a, as a good arbiter of magnesium? Well, you know, uh, red blood cells don't have uh, cytoplasm, and they're not really a good reflection. Uh, I, I was a little frustrated as I went through the research, and I finally came down to, and this is my recommendation, is that they have some experimental tests that are very good, looking at cytoplasmic levels, but not practical tests for you to follow yourself. So number one, if you're Blood level is low, you're low. You don't need to go any further in testing. Mm -hmm. Number two is if your blood level is quote unquote normal, then really the next step is to go to something called, uh, it's the, the website is Exatest, E-X-A-T-E-S-T, Exatest.com. Mm -hmm. 
and they actually get sublingual swabs and they measure uh, intracellular levels of not only magnesium, but calcium and a couple other electrolytes. And furthermore, they actually went to the effort of correlating these results to tissue biopsies taken at the same time. And they correlated very well with skeletal muscle biopsies uh, and atrial tissue biopsies in, uh, in patients that were getting biopsies of heart tissue for one reason or another. So it appears to be your best direct reflection that we have so far. Maybe something will come out better down the road. Yeah. I don't know. But right now, it looks like the best way for you to really know uh, not only what your magnesium level is, but even better to get an idea of what of, of how well suppressed your calcium levels are inside your cells as well. And how does it make that determination? I mean, how, how to, it's, that it's a... It's, um, gosh, it's a scanning machine. I don't know the, the, uh, the technology involved, but uh, it gives good, reliable reflections of whatever's inside the cell. I'm, I'm not oh, so it's, telling, it's, it's not only telling you intracellular magnesium, but intracellular calcium. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, okay. That's good. That's interesting to know. At least inside the mouth, the buccal the bucle mucosa. <laughs> right. Like, which is probably... Sublingual. sub-lingual. Oh, yes. sublingual. Okay. So... Uh, well, that's, and that that they found that that correlates pretty well with other tissue. tissue right, samples. correlates well with other, other biopsies for the same information, yes. Sir. That's good. And how long have you been using the test? Uh, well, I only became familiar with the test uh, by about the time I was finished writing the book uh, ooh, six months ago. Okay. Uh, and um, Dr. Honeyhackey has begun using it a little bit. I mean, it's not an outlandishly expensive test, but it's going to run about... 250 or $300. So you don't want to just get it for no reason at all. But if you're dealing with problems that can certainly be secondary to magnesium deficiency, it's good to rule that out as best as possible as being a major contributor to whatever it is you might be treating. Okay. And how many people do you, or what percentage of the population do you believe is deficient in magnesium? Wow. Okay. Obviously it's just my opinion, but I would say between 80 and 90%. I, I would agree with you. <laughs> Maybe even higher. Maybe even higher. Depends on what definition you use, because the challenge is, of course, as you just alluded to, we don't really have good testing for intracellular magnesium levels. That's correct. But so we it's still even better intramitochondrial magnesium levels. But we still also know that just about everybody in the population with given afflictions or diseases, they get better when you give them more magnesium. So in that regard, it doesn't really matter what that level ends up being if you're doing something that's therapeutic and not toxic. Yeah. So, and why don't you address that now? Because that's one of the reasons why magnesium is one of my favorite supplements. And it's one I take pretty much every day without fail, uh, is the toxicity level. Uh, it has an almost a built-in mechanism to prevent toxicity. So why don't you discuss that? Because I think it's really intriguing. Sure. Well, as, um, as you well know, if you get prepared for a colonoscopy and they need to clean out your bowels, they give you magnesium chloride? No, magnesium citrate. They give you magnesium citrate. And of course, you, you go like a goose until you're empty. So obviously, when you've taken enough magnesium of any oral type, uh, the downside is that you stop absorbing and it goes to the colon, similar to vitamin C, and causes a loose diarrhea. Now, so is the oral ever toxic? 
For the most part, no, but I need to mention a small subset where it is significant. Uh, you have a lot of nursing home patients that have significant constipation and they get uh, magnesium preparations, but if the magnesium preparation doesn't start working, then you have it just sitting there in the gut. And in some of those patients, it will get overabsorbed and cause toxicity. That's about the only subset that I know of for the oral. Now, obviously then, or, or it should be obvious that uh, you can very easily uh, harm yourself by taking too much magnesium too rapidly intravenously. But that's also its therapeutic effect. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, and it's a known entity. Matter of fact, in dental surgery, they have something called magnesium-induced controlled hypotension uh, because uh, surgeries on the jawbone bleed so badly, they want to use something to deliberately bring you down to controlled hypotensive levels until you get hemostasis, and then they back off of the magnesium and your blood pressure comes back up. But the point I make about that is you give enough magnesium, you can take any blood pressure and bring it down to zero. So within those confines, though, there's, it's very, very safe. Uh, and if you, it's a calcium channel blocker. And interestingly enough, if you overdose on a prescription calcium channel blocker, you get the same thing. You get severe hypotension. Uh, and, and in fact, ironically enough, our, our um, pseudo enemy calcium is one of the ways you bring people out of that. Yeah, interesting. I used to use a lot of intravenous magnesium. Uh, I use magnesium sulfate, I, but, but after reading your book, I think it should have been magnesium chloride. But the reason it lowers your blood pressure is a vasodilator. It enlarges your blood vessels. And if you inject it rapidly enough, they will, the patients will get very warm, sometimes almost hot and sweating, which is an interesting a solution for people with migraines, which is essentially the spastic interaction of these arteries in the brain that seems to work almost instantly. It was, it, I'm not sure what your experience is, but it's, it was like my go-to for, for getting rid of an acute migraine. It didn't work all the time, but it worked most of the time. Upon my review on migraine, let me say it's my humble opinion that migraine is completely and totally a magnesium deficiency disease. That's mm -hmm. how significant magnesium is in the physiology of that. Interestingly enough, at about the same time I was writing on my migraine in my book, uh, a friend called me who was going through some horrible situations with a syndrome I had never heard before called uh, cerebral uh, vasoconstriction, reversible vas cerebral vasoconstriction, and even having a slight bit of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. I read up on it and I said, look, this looks identical basically to migraine physiology. Start dosing your, your magnesium like there's no tomorrow. And she did, and she eventually came out of it. And I guarantee you she hasn't gotten off, off uh, magnesium since, and she's had no recurring episodes. So just vasospasm in general are really migraine deficiency or strongly migraine uh, aggravated disorders. Uh, one point I'd like to make, you had mentioned earlier about intravenous, is the fact that I also like to tell people never miss an opportunity if you get an IV for any reason at all to have the opportunity to put magnesium in it. Mm -hmm. There were Crazy two nasty. studies. There were two studies, fascinating studies done on coronary care unit patients with either infarcts or unstable angina, 
And in one group, over 24 hours, the other group, 36 hours, they infused roughly a gram of magnesium every hour, 24 mm. grams or 36 grams. They all did great. They were only looking at heart parameters, but lo and behold, follow up five years later, just that one treatment with magnesium that one day, and there was still a decreased all-cause mortality seen five years later. So that's why I say never miss the opportunity to, as you will, stock up your mitochondria on, on magnesium by taking advantage of the opportunity to get it intravenously. Yeah, and as long as you're not injecting it too quickly. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. There's no toxicity. Well, that, to that's a good point, too. We talk yeah. about these IV pushes of vitamin C. I'm very careful when I tell people, you know, you can't be pushing magnesium rapid IV push. Well, you could, but you got to warn yeah. them. But got, well, I mean, a smaller amount. I mean, from hypotension, yeah. not from yeah, yeah. just yeah. from hypotension. Have them laying down. In these, in these uh, IV pushes that I'm talking about, we'll still routinely put. 500 milligrams of magnesium and then in that and, and that still goes in in five minutes yeah. along with the vitamin c with no problem <clears throat> were you using it for the treatment of acute migraines too no i was using it for uh antiviral and general health benefits i in my old age i've gotten very um impatient with sitting still for an iv <laughs> yeah yes indeed no i like the iv pushes so uh, I'd like to discuss your preference for magnesium salt in the IVs. Uh, it sounds like you would prefer the chloride as opposed to the sulfate. I think, well, most of the research for IV has been done on sulfate. So mm -hmm. that's fine. The chloride, this is very fascinating to me, appears to be the best antimicrobial. Mm. And they even showed that the sulfate form and the chloride form had opposite effects in vitro studies looking at their effect on, I think it was virus, maybe another pathogen, one suppressed it, the other encouraged it. And then of course we have the data, uh, if you want to call it data, the anecdotal data of the French physician who cured all the polio with many anecdotal reports. So I think the chloride entity is extremely important for the anti-infectious property of magnesium. So uh, if you're taking it for the purposes of infection, magnesium chloride. If you're taking it for the IV, magnesium sulfate. If you're taking it orally just for the magnesium, then any of a number of things. Magnesium glycinate, magnesium 3 and 8, uh, magnesium uh, gluconate, all of those are great. I've got a question for you on oral preparations. There is one form of magnesium supplement that's not widely known that essentially has no laxative side effect because it's not a salt. <laughs> Do you know which magnesium supplement that is? Oh, uh, no, Hint, I'll, I'll I mentioned, I mentioned me. it earlier. It's molecular hydrogen tablets, which is metallic magnesium, which uh, when put into water liberates molecular hydrogen gas and ionic elemental magnesium without a salt. It's just pure ionic magnesium. So you can take like 400 milligrams of elemental magnesium, like just swallow it instantly with no laxative effect. It's crazy. And, and what's the form called, uh, Joe? It's magnesium. It's, it's molecular hydrogen as a tablet. Oh. As a tablet. Yeah, it's the, the tablet itself is metallic magnesium in a special format that, that it designed to... to uh, liberate the molecular hydrogen gas over about 90 seconds and 
not only the gas, but once it's liberated, you have the, the ionic magnesium, the magnesium ions floating around. So not only do you get molecular hydrogen, which is my absolute favorite supplement, but my number two favorite supplement comes with it for free, magnesium. Sounds great. Yeah, I, I'm like, not that familiar with it, but sounds great. Oh, it's, it, it is something, I would say it's B-E. That's beyond extraordinary. It's, it's, I, I think you would love it. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a bottle. You're gonna love it. it All right, know, I appreciate that. Yeah, you're gonna. It's good stuff. So especially if you have this exposure to oxidizing or ionizing radiation, like when you're uh, uh, flying, which is a real common problem. Oh, sorry, I just had to put my power on. Um, all right, so the. Would you? Are there any other points on the magnesium that you'd like to mention? Because it's a such a useful uh, strategy to improve your health. So I guess, but in the book you talk about some other toxic nutrients, and you've already alluded to one. So I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about some of the others. The obvious one is the one you wrote your previous book on, which is about the the calcium lie. Oh, I think that was your no, book. No, no, death, death by calcium. Oh, death by calcium. Sorry. Yeah. Calcium was, was uh, someone else. So, uh, yeah, but it, the, both books point to the problems with calcium because there were, as, as supplementation, uh, because there was a massive, uh, uh, I guess, implementation of calcium supplements when the connection to osteoporosis became widely appreciated in the 70s and 80s. And uh, your book is a, is a sort of a backlash to that and telling the consequences. So why don't you go into that a little bit and talk about some of the other toxic nutrients. It's interesting about calcium. It's kind of funny how things just happen to occur. And, you know, bones are white. On x-ray, they're white. One of your biggest dietary sources of calcium is milk, which is white. And it's incredible how just that cosmetic similarity just gets the marketing of milk going and hyped up so high. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting, though, when you take large amounts of calcium, and this is one of the things that the docs ought to realize out there that might still be using it, is if you take large amounts of calcium, you will make the bone density score a little bit higher, but it's not reflective of good bone. And while that score goes higher, it's like putting paint on a rotting fence. You lean against it, it still breaks. This does not decrease your incidence of osteoporotic fractures. And that's really the only point of trying to treat osteoporosis is to make somebody less prone stronger bone and less prone toward osteoporotic fractures. And calcium absolutely does not do this while at the same time, of course, uh, accumulating massively throughout your body. Uh, there's a lot of different things cited in the book, but the one thing to keep in mind, a lot of people and physicians think, oh, well, you're old, your artery should develop a little calcium. No, it's never, never, never normal to have uh, extracellular calcifications in your body, uh, in, a, in a organ, in a blood vessel, that's absolutely not normal. Uh, but because we share a lot of our dietary habits, we share a lot of our bad supplemental habits, kind of, kind of horrible to say bad supplements, but that's exactly what calcium is, is a bad supplement. 
uh, these problems tend to proliferate. Also, and antacids. I mean, you get an overdose, almost a glass of milk worth when you pop a couple tums of Rolaids. So those are calcium carbonate, and for the calcium reasons, they're just as toxic as everything else. Yes, indeed. So the uh, calcium issues you just described with respect to providing or creating weaker bones is just reminds me of the phosphonate drugs or biphosphonate drugs that are used as to treat osteoporosis, which do the exact same thing. They increase the bone density, but they decrease the bone strength and actually increase the risk of fractures, which is just beyond ludicrous and have their own intrinsic toxicity. So uh, with respect to extracellular calcium deposition, I'm wondering, and as a cardiologist, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on using the quarterly artery calcium score as a suggestion of a heart disease or well, coronary artery calcification. It's an excellent test for prognosis, long-term prognosis for heart attack. But what's very interesting too, Joe, is that's obviously what it first came out for, I don't know, some 15, 20 years ago, and it's evolved over that time, and they have pretty well-refined predictive scales now. But what's very interesting is they've now found that the coronary artery calcium score also correlates directly with all-cause mortality. The higher your calcium in the coronaries, the higher your chance of death from any cause. And this, I think, is quite straightforward. The calcium is just the sentinel that's indicating to you what the calcium status is throughout the rest of the body as well. So if you have high coronary calcium, you have high extra, uh, extracellular calcium throughout the body as well, which is why it reflects in increased all-cause mortality and not just increased cardiac mortality. But yes, it's an excellent test. And so far, it's one of the few tests we have that I know of to clearly tell you if your overall supplemental nutrition, healthcare regimen is working optimally. And it's only working optimally, in my opinion, is if you started it and you had a calcium score of 100 and six months to a year later, it's down to 50 and two years later, it's down to zero then that's a good program. Okay. So I, I have never ordered the test, but I, it, I believe it's, a, it's an X-ray. So it's ionizing radiation, but is it a CAT scan too on top of that? It's basically a CAT scan, yes. Yeah. So CAT scan is enormous levels of radiation, literally 100 times or more that of a chest X-ray. So if you're going to do that test, I would caution you to do a number of things. One is treat it like you're being, being going to get chemotherapy and that you should be fasting for a day or two. Uh, why? Because when you're fasting, you'll be in nutritional ketosis and ketones uh, are a profoundly effective mitigator against oxidative stress. You could take vitamin C like, like Dr. Levy suggests too. You could also take molecular hydrogen. I would take like four, six, 10 tablets about a half hour before the scan. Uh, which will radically re decrease your risk of this oxidative damage. In fact, this molecular hydrogen is so potent and useful that NASA is studying it for mitigating the oxidative stress that the astronauts are exposed to. So great test, but just be really careful about this oxidative stress because, and that's not just true for the, this coronary artery, cats, the coronary artery calcium score, but for any CAT scan, you know, these diagnostic tests can be very dangerous and, and any CAT scan is certainly falls into that category. Sure. Yeah. I can't so, disagree with that, sir. 
Yeah, yeah. It's just, I mean, thank God we have them, but boy, they come at a cost. So, um, so we, we discussed calcium, but there's two other ones that you mentioned in the book too, the iron, and then I believe copper. Copper, yes. Yeah, they're what I call the three toxic nutrients. Uh, and I don't mean that as a pun or a joke. They're certainly, absolutely, without any qualification, uh, essential mm-hmm. at lower doses for normal metabolism. Calcium, I mean, plays a role in uh, just about everything, uh, the contraction of your heart. Uh, iron is essential for blood production. Uh, copper plays a similar but lesser role to iron and many of the things that it does. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know whether you agree with this or not, but I've, I've yet to see, I know there are articles about in vitro, but I've yet to see a person that I think is legitimately deficient in copper. Uh, but whether or not that person exists, the more important one is iron. And iron, in my opinion, you should never supplement if you have if you do not have a iron deficiency anemia, a hypochromic microcytic anemia, because, well, for all the things that iron does, it's very tiny amounts of iron that are needed to be coenzymes, et cetera, but you need relatively massive amounts to make normal blood count. So if you're making enough blood, you have enough iron for everything else. Combined with that, and I don't know, if people wanna be shocked, they can go to YouTube, and type in Dr. Levy iron video, and you'll be absolutely appalled to see what's been put in our fortified and rich foods for the last 70 years. And I've got news for you. I'm not nuts. They put in metallic iron filings. Now, how on earth that's nutritious is beyond me. But even if they put in a legitimate supplemental form of iron, still, the more iron you accumulate in the body, the greater your body-wide oxidative stress is, and oxidative stress is what we're trying to avoid. Yes, indeed. I would just be at a minor bit of caution that's only relevant to a few people, but I happen to be one of those people, and not all hypochromic microcytic anemia is our iron deficiency. Be really careful if you have beta thalassemia like I do or sickle cell anemia because those present identical, and giving iron in that scenario is the kiss of death. And I've seen that done to so many. Well, patients. you would certainly want to see a very low ferritin level as a yes, very low yeah. ferritin level as well. Yes. Right. Yeah. That might be a better uh, diagnostic criteria, you know, a ferritin level below 20. Uh, but you know, when you get high iron levels, I, I couldn't agree more. It's one of the most toxic products that you usually, it's very rare where an individual is going to need to be iron supplemented. And, and those, th- those rarities would be to anyone who's, who has a uh, blood loss or as a growing child or a heavily menstruating woman. But, you know, certainly- Interestingly um, enough, some younger people who heavily induce, who heavily participate in aerobic activity, long distance runners, et cetera, at the end end of the season, they will have sweated out enough iron to be anemic, interestingly enough. Yeah, yeah, so there are some unusual scenarios, but they are unusual and don't- Right, no, mostly it's blood loss, absolutely. Yeah, so- uh, just be really careful about you. I couldn't agree with you more on that one. It probably, for every person who benefits from an iron supplementation, there's probably 10 to 100 or are getting or more. dangerous side effects from it. Yes, sir. And premature death being one of the major ones. The book, again, is Magnesium Reversing Disease, and it's pretty much available at all bookstores, although uh, 
if Amazon is delivering to your house. <laughs> it's a big question now, especially when this thing airs, who knows? So, all right. Well, thank you for all your work and I appreciate you writing the book and sharing your wisdom with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Joe. Take care.